Is there order to the universe? Can God's existence be known apart from faith? And what was the difference made in history in your life and mine to the incarnation of the Logos, Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to talk about in part one of the series with Dr. E. Michael Jones. Subscribe to this channel. Hit that uh, notification bell. Don't search for the show. Let it come to you nice and easy rather than uh, pray to St. Anthony all day long. Let it arrive into your, uh, your inbox. You won't be sorry. You're welcome in advance. This episode of The Patrick Coffin Show brought to you by Covenant Eyes. If you want your porn use down to zero, if you want to protect yourself, your spouses, and your, your children, check out CovenantEyes.com. My name, Patrick, as a coupon code, gets you 30 days for free. This is not only blocking adult content, it is accountability software, which means every search term, every page you visit, you can't trick out through uh, in incognito mode, nothing like that. It all goes to a third party. So, CovenantEyes.com, Patrick. As a coupon code, my name, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, gets you 30 days for free. Coming up next, Dr. E. Michael Jones, author of Logos Rising. As promised, Dr. E. Michael Jones, editor of Culture Wars magazine, author of Degenerate Moderns and Slaughter of Cities and Barren Metal and Libido Dominandi and Monsters from the Id, and this... Enjoyable tome, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Michael Jones, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, normally your books are 1,100 pages. This, is a, this comes in at like a mere 840 pages, something like that. Yes, but, I was thinking of calling it a short history of ultimate reality. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that... that uh, Rye irony would not have not have been lost. Um, <laughs> when people say, "Well, gee, it's a it's a large book and it's uh, it's more expensive than the average book," my reply is, "You're actually getting several books in this uh, compilation. This I call it a magisterial romp through the history of beginnings." Did this did this uh, book germinate over time? Did it sort of come to you whole cloth, or are these ideas that you developed over time talking about other things? It grew out of the uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit because I, I couldn't write that book without the term Logos mm -hmm. uh, because the, the central thesis of that book is that uh, Jesus Christ is the Logos. Uh, that's obviously in the Gospel of St. John, but uh, I had to unpack it there and say, you know, that uh, when the Jews killed Christ, they rejected Logos. And they, when they rejected Logos, they rejected the order of the universe. And when they rejected the order of the universe, they became revolutionaries. So that, I had to do that in that book. There's no other word I could have used. And then once I did that, then people started saying, well, what do you mean by Logos? And then I started to think, I guess I have to explain that word. And so that eventually mm -hmm. ended up with this book uh, because Logos is the, the source of who we are. It is the, the ultimate reality of the universe. It is the turning point in human history. And so uh, I, needed, I needed to explain it and devote, uh, uh, devote my attention to that topic exclusively. What year did the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit come out? 2009. Okay, and that was the book that got you uh, expunged from polite society because you were taken yes, to— Yes, I was—, you, I was Go ahead. I was no longer fit for polite company after I wrote that book. I mean, I was on my way out already, but I mean, that was the final nail in my coffin of respectability. So yes, you're right. It sounds like you, in your career, you've been the pariah. You were uh, fired from St. Mary's College in South Bend for your position on abortion, namely you were against it. Um, so you were, you were already on the outs 
as far as uh, operating beyond the shadow of the ivory tower. Um, have you always yes. been drawn to uh, ideas that are unpopular and kind of going against the, the grain of conventional thinking? I, I, you know, it's something, it must be some type of unconscious thing with me. I don't, I don't understand it. I'm going to, I'm not trying to be uh, kicked out, but I always get kicked out. I invariably get kicked out of any, every organization that I try to join. And uh, I'm sure it's a character flaw on my part, but I mean, there's, I'm too late. To, I guess it's too late to do anything about it. I Go mean, after, I, after yeah. I got kicked. Good. Yeah, I, 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 I would never join a club that would accept me as the member, as a member. So maybe every time they accept me as a member, I feel upset and want to get kicked out of it. I don't know. You, I, you, you can, you, I'll have to get, I'll have to go to a, a psychiatrist to figure that one out, I guess. But prob uh, probably not I mean, after I was kicked out of, after I was kicked out of the, the uh, St. Mary's, I established, you know, tried to establish this magazine and then I did the book on Medjugorje and then I got kicked out of that club. And then I got kicked out of the conservative club. And so here I am. Here I am. What adjectives would you use to describe yourself and the mission of Culture Wars? Do you have any? Uh, adjectives. Uh, sincere. Um, just a desire to, to get impatience with uh, confected narratives that are supposed to keep you imprisoned in your ignorance. I think that's the constant. I've been, I've been, and sometimes I don't even know. I don't even know that I'm uh, goring someone's ox sometimes. Sometimes I kind of blunder into it. But I mean, that's, that's the story of my life. When I first encountered your books, it was uh, at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I, I did a graduate, uh, graduate program there in theology, and we had to read Degenerate Moderns. And one of the scales that fell from my eyes was your chapter on Luther's legacy. And it really got me thinking about this, this conflict throughout, throughout time that we call history, that one set of ideas will, will be crushed by either, either a boot or a gun or some other set of ideas. And then from that, there'll be a, a kind of resurrection of an old order. And then I read Libido Dominandi. And it was in Libido Dominandi, uh, Dr. Jones, that I noticed that you were kind of stumbling upon a certain pattern, and that is the preponderance of a very narrow uh, set of interests that were selling these revolutionary ideas. And you didn't, you didn't say, "Oh, this is called the revolutionary, the Jewish revolutionary spirit." Why, why does that book arouse so much anger in people? Why do they immediately jump to, well, "You must be an anti-Semite"? Because I've, I've seen you interview Jews who don't disagree with you. Yes, it's because you're not allowed to criticize a Jew. It's that simple. And, and I was, I, I didn't know I was doing it. So if you go to uh, Dionysus Rising, that whole chapter on uh, Arnold Schoenberg was a critique of basically the Jewish attitude toward music. Uh, and I didn't know it. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, I had a, a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Dresner, Sam Dresner used to tell me, uh, you know, tell other Catholics they should subscribe to my magazine. Because it was a great magazine, and uh, I had reviewed his book and so on and so forth. And, and at one point, he said to me, "Why do you always talk about Jews?" I said, I "What do you mean talk about Jews? When do I talk about Jews? I didn't know I was talking about Jews." And at that point, I started to become conscious that maybe that Schoenberg thing and these other people fit together in a different way, and that, along with the 
the neocon takeover of our foreign policy in 2003 got me thinking. Maybe there is something to this story, and that's 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 what led to the book. But you can in in many ways, every book you write, I write, grows out of the book I just wrote. Mm-hmm. So writing John Cardinal Kroll opened me to the idea that something happened to the cities, and I wrote uh, "Slaughter of Cities: Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing." That's just the way it works. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like I can't get to the top until I do this bottom part here. So you're like building a pyramid one layer at a time. And you can't get to the next layer until you complete this layer. And each book is a prelude to to another book. That's yeah. the way it's worked. Was it Joe Sabran who said that anti-Semitism used to be someone who didn't like Jews and now it's become some uh, someone Jews don't like? Is that Joe Sabran? Yes. Yes, that was Joe Sabran. I mean, That's I, where I got it. I got so much anger unleashed at me, uh, Dr. Jones, when I first interviewed you. And I, I've... I, the fact that I've had you back, this is, I think, our fourth conversation, was not me trying to, you know, stick uh, my finger in someone's eye saying, I'll, 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 uh, I'll show you. Uh, I just don't understand why people can't simply disagree. The, uh, the vitriol level is way out of proportion to the, the discussion underhand. I mean, I know conservative Jews. I've interviewed a long string of them. I, uh, so I, <laughs> I won't name them because it sounds like, yeah, some of my best friends are black. But right. um, why, I just don't understand... The um, and it's it's cross it's cross uh, it crosses denominational and political lines. People on the far right and people on the far left. There's just a just a, a weird reaction to things um, when you talk about logos, the rejection of logos. Uh, what is a revolution? What 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 was the proportion of Bolsheviks or the the um, the uh, Vienna School? You know the Frankfurt School, rather. It just keeps cropping up over and over again, and people That's who right. notice it, it are, and, and the heavy hand of the Holocaust and so on is, I think, it intimidates people, and they don't. Uh, maybe the goal is to shut down conversation so that there's no. It is, that is the goal. That is the goal. There are certain things you're not allowed to talk about, and suddenly when you get to that, you realize, wait a minute, holy smoke, there's a whole barrier that I didn't even know because I was steering clear of it, and now suddenly when you get there, you realize, no, you're not allowed to talk about this. So I just to give you one instance of this, I was invited to Armenia, okay, and uh, it got canceled because everything got canceled. But then I thought, oh, I'll do a little research, and I think, well, I'll look into the Armenian genocide. What do I know? Nothing. My father used to say when I wouldn't eat my food, he'd say, think of the starving Armenians. That's how I knew about this type of thing. So I look into it, and the state of the art there is basically Armenians pointing their fingers at the Turks and Turks pointing their fingers at the Armenians and say, you guys are responsible. Okay, so I look into it. Well, guess guess what happened here? Guess what I discovered? I discovered the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Not even looking for it, I discovered it. Because what happened here is that you had, at this point in time, let's say the late 19th century, you have large numbers of people converting to the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So both Armenians and Turks were abandoning their traditional beliefs and joining revolutionary movements like Narodnaya Volia in Russia, which was a Jewish revolutionary movement. It was There was a traditional Russian revolutionary movement and the Jews got nowhere because it was back to the land and the peasants wouldn't listen to them. So they formed their own movement, which was based on terrorism. Richard Pipes, who was a Jew, professor at Harvard, said it's the first terrorist organization in the world. This suddenly threw the whole 
Armenian genocide question into a totally new uh, uh, construct, a totally new context, only because there is this concept out there called the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So it wasn't just me. It wasn't just a category in my mind. It's out there. And it helps you to understand and it helped me understand the Armenian genocide. It was like putting a key into a lock and the door opened. So I felt vindicated. It's not just me. It's out there. And it's in there all of human history. And that's what the book is about. We're going to revisit this when we when we get to the incarnation in uh, in part two of this conversation. I want to, if we can, press press rewind and go way way back. Uh, for people listening uh, to my show, they know that I'm very interested in in philosophy and argumentation, how to spot fallacies. And early on in Logos Rising, you summarize the basic problems with the four horsemen of the apocalypse: Sam Dennett, excuse me, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, the late Chris Hitchens, rest his uh, his soul, and uh, Richard Dawkins. Can you go uh, summarize, if you could, the example that um, the late Chris Hitchens uses of of uh, the eyeball? Because it goes to this. Uh, both Dawkins and Hitchens had this idea that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have this this gradual evolution and natural selection that avoids the obvious. How did something go from not not being to being? Right. Uh, but that image of the eyeball and the way you take it apart was very fascinating. Well, I mean, it, it it's an all or nothing proposition, and what you realize throughout uh, history is all of these things are all or nothing propositions. Now, it could be the jaw, uh, the wing. Uh, uh, there is a, a design here. They are designed to do something like that. So what you're saying is, well, how did we get up to that point? Well, there must have been a gradual evolution. Well, you can't have a gradual evolution because no matter how you try to describe it, you're always going from non-being to being. And you mm -hmm. cannot do that. And the man who discovered you cannot do that is Parmenides. Uh, this was one of the early steps of the development of Logos. Okay, that which is cannot come from that which is not. That's what Parmenides said. It led to problems, obviously, because now you can't explain change. But it is a fundamental issue, a fundamental uh, concept of ontology that is valid today. And the place where it's best applicable is evolution. Because evolution is constantly telling you you can go from that which is not to that which is. Now, they, they try and fudge it, okay? And Hitchens tries to do it with the eyeball. And uh, Dawkins tries to do it with the wing, okay? And mm -hmm. so Dawkins will say, you know, well, it, it looks impossible but from Mount Improbable, there are two sides, and one's a big leap and the other's a gradual slope. And if you go up the gradual slope with small steps, it's easy. Well, what he forgot to say was every single step along that gradual slope is a step from non-being to being. And you can't get there. You cannot do that. Nothing can come from nothing. Okay, so what you hear, what you're seeing here is biology as a as bad metaphysics. Dawkins has no idea about metaphysics, complete ignoramus when it comes to this. And he tries to substitute biology and these gradual steps without understanding that you can't do it. You can't get there from here. So he says, well, suppose you had 49% of a wing. 
and you <laughs> and you fell out of a tree. Well, if 49% of a wing is better than no wing at all, right? Well, wait a minute, professor. If it's 49% of a wing, it's a wing. So you've already got the wing that you're trying to prove came out of evolution. So you're it's it's a circular argument. You can't you've already got a wing. You've already claim, made that claim. The same thing was true with with uh, uh, Hitchens' eyeballs. It began with light-sensitive cells. Well, wait a minute. Those light-sensitive cells that you're talking about, either they can see, in which case you've already got an eye, or they cannot see, in which case you don't have an eye. But it's it's one or the other, so it's a tautology. You're already talking about something you already have. Could you say the whole idea of survival of the fittest is a tautology because none of the yes, parts of the is. argument add anything uh survival of the fittest how do you know because the fittest survived how did they survive because they were the strongest well wait a second that's that doesn't that doesn't get you out of the gate no you're exactly right it's a tautology it's a circular argument and the only way the best way out of it is to explain metaphysics and logos and these early steps that these people took in ionia uh to um, enable human progress we had to do this we had to come to some understanding of ultimate reality that was independent of this mythologizing that had come into the world codified by by uh homer mm -hmm. uh, and all those gods fighting. Gods don't fight with each other. First of all, there can only be one. And secondly, he's not going to fight. Now, we do have an understanding that God is a father. And that's not just uh, a revelation. That is a universal understanding. It came out in uh, Jupiter. It is basically Zeus Pater. It's the Romans, the Greeks. Everybody had it. So that's true. It is true. We would call that uh, logoi spermaticoi, the seeds of, of, of uh, logos that God put into the universe, into the mind of man. Mm -hmm. But it went down the wrong road because you start saying, well, God is a father. He must have a beard. And if yeah. he's got a beard, well, then does he shave every day or does he shave every other day? And you go down that road and you're going nowhere because you're going away from God into the metaphor. And that's not what God is. Okay. Yeah. I, I think... Uh Christian art, in its well-meaning attempt to to visualize the Trinity, say in in stained glass, created a problem because if God is an old man with a long white beard, then Jesus must be a younger man with a short brown beard, and then the Holy Spirit's what a dove, a bird, a flame. There's nowhere to go. Right, you're going you're you're going beyond. First of all, the whole point of logos is that it went into a, a level of abstraction that was necessary, because before that they were saying, well, the ultimate reality is water. The ultimate reality is fire. The ultimate reality is air. These are all material things, and we had to go beyond material things in order to understand this. If you're talking about the ultimate immaterial thing, you're talking about God. And so anytime you have an analogy, it's going to be uh, uh, fall short. It's going to fall short of the reality. And who is the first to, to use or popularize Logos? Uh, Heraclitus? I think it was Heraclitus, yes, who also said it was fire. And in many ways, fire, uh, and he was a, he was, this is all in Ionia, which is basically on the coast of Turkey right now, uh, in uh, uh, Western Turkey. It, these were Greek colonies, and uh, they were ruled by Persia at the time, and there are people who say that Heraclitus was influenced by Zoroastrianism, which worships fire. 
And there is, I mean, it, it, fire does create an interesting image because it is the nose energy. It's it's what we would call energy, and energy is certainly a, a, an integral part of the universe. And energy is ch constantly changing and constantly the same, like like the water flowing in a river. So it's profound. Mm. But he also came up with the word logos, and maybe so. So I I, I postulate in the book. Well, maybe fire is logos in action. And then you've got the whole the whole spectrum of the book. Yeah. Because you've got the, the first part is the history of logos, where we have to understand what that term means. And then the second part is when we understand that, then we can see that there's a logos to history, which includes time. And that was new. Yeah. Greeks had no sense of what time was. And you say that, along with the historian Christopher Dawson, that the, the discovery of time began in earnest with Augustine. We're getting right. a that's little, little ahead of ourselves. Um, yes. So, uh, Thales argued that the, the fundamental ultimate reality was water. Heraclitus said it was fire. Um, Exonomenes, who said it was air? Do you remember? Air, yes. Okay. Yes. So they all, they all have this, they're all, they're all capturing a facet of the truth. They just don't have the fullness of it that perhaps didn't come until until Logos was picked up by uh, the author of the fourth gospel, St. John in his uh, John 1, verse 1. But talk a little bit, for people who have no no um, exposure to the to the word, if you look up in a, a Greek interlinear or a, a lexicon, what do you find with the word Logos? You find column after column after column of English equivalents. And this is what struck me when I was studying Greek way back when. There's simply, and, and, and because of that, there is no other word that you can use. So it's not an affectation on my part to use the word logos because there's no other word. And this becomes apparent with the translations of the Gospel of St. John. So, in arche ein ha logos. In principio erat verbum. Well, now we're back to word. In the mm. beginning, there was the word um, anfang vardas wort. So once you get away from uh, the original Greek, they're all the same, and they all use the word word, and I don't know what it means. I'm sorry, but I didn't know what it meant. I just don't, I don't, mm -hmm. I look at it, it was total. Uh, that's a totally mysterious sentence when you say in the beginning there was the word. But then when I suddenly realized, when I saw the word logos and all the English equivalents, I said, oh, now I can't, I understand what you're talking about. Because in the, you're saying in the beginning there was this order to the universe, uh, that is related to our rationality. And language is one of the key principles of the universe, mm -hmm. and we are the only ones who have it. So once you start bringing all that in, suddenly it makes a lot more sense. And then mm -hmm. to jump from there to say, and Logos was with God, and Logos is God, now I'm starting to understand the immensity of this type of statement. Where you're taking, I mean, we have our, our, our separated brethren who like to complain about how the Catholic Church paganized, accepts pagan concepts. Well, do you uh, accept the gospel of St. John as canonical? Well, you're talking about pagans here, right? Because he didn't write, he wrote in Greek. And the Greeks had this thing called philosophy, and he baptized that philosophy. And we wouldn't have that gospel if you didn't, if we didn't, weren't able to use Greek concepts and Greek words. And this is the mm -hmm. history of the church. Maybe the thing that 
redeems word or, or gives it some intelligibility is a line from uh, the memoirs of Helen Keller. She's talking to Annie Sullivan about, the, now this is a woman who's blind and deaf, uh, but she, once she had that insight that, that uh, you can see it and it comes through in the film of the miracle worker where the, the unintelligibility of the outside world suddenly uh, all of the external reality rushes into her mind through the, the signals that uh, Miss Sullivan taught her. She eventually concluded that uh, the soul is like the meaning of a word, and the word itself is the body of the meaning. I thought that's really beautiful. It's sort of yes. a, a word with a speaker is a kind of a metaphor or analogy to the human person. We're souls that you can't see, but we're also bodies that you not only can see, but they're the medium through which the invisibility of your mind is communicated. So then we're left with uh, with the Logos as the Word and God the Father as the speaker of the Word. I know you've pondered all this, but that's what that was my takeaway. And we and we're left with the Gospel, where there are two, where it it proposes the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity right. is not the word Trinity is ne- is not in the Bible. You'll never find it. But once this was proposed, then they had to figure out, well, what is the relationship between the Son and the Father? And so what are the characteristics of the Son? What are the characteristics of the second person of the Blessed Trinity? There are two basic characteristics. One is Logos, and the other is Son. Mm -hmm. Why is it both of those things? Well, Logos, as I said, could be the abstract order of the universe, and the Greeks understood that there was something like that. And you could say, well, geometry. Yeah, that's a good example of what we're talking about, okay? But that's not enough right? because it's a person, too. It's a son. That's a person. And so what you have here is not just an abstract principle. You've got someone who actually embodies that principle and puts it into action throughout all of human history. Mm -hmm. That's the powerful statement of uh, St. John's Gospel. Let's linger for a minute on speech. You you'd spend some time on on how profound language is as a as a as an um, irreducible jump from the animals. Uh, you could say with Aristotle that we're rational animals, but the idea of speech is is unique to humanity. Uh, you could say it's unique to the angels too. Uh, the day I was trying to look uh, for the email, I finally found Tom Wolfe's email. The day I went to email him to be on my show, because his last book is called The Kingdom of Speech, which is his secular broadside against Darwin and Darwinian evolution, that was the day he died, so that, that never happened. But he, he goes on and on uh, in that book about how we take speech for granted, but it's a, a completely mysterious um, phenomenon. And, and you say in, in Logos Rising that speech is the, the main uh, identifier of a being that is made in the image and likeness of God, the Logos himself. Right, right. And I also say it could not come about through evolution. Could not do that. Because what would it have to, what would have to happen here? Okay? You'd have to have this gradual evolution uh, that culminated in one person saying, hello, how are you? And the other person saying, I'm fine, thank you. Now, what are the chances of that? How, mm-hmm. how would that ever be? Because that is the beginning of the of the human race. That is that is the first e- evidence that you have this rational creature. It comes from speech. Well, speech has to be spoken to someone. What are you speaking? 
You're speaking a language. And not only are you speaking a language where you have all these concepts and little, you know, you smacking your lips and suddenly these things have meaning. There's someone else who has to understand exactly what you're saying and able to respond. Well, that cannot come about through random mutation. That's impossible. I mean, try and I don't know how you would calculate the odds, but you can't do it. So the so the uh, Ratzinger picked this up at one point, and he said, "Well, the first man spoke to God." I suppose that's possible, you know, because uh, a man, according to the Genesis story, man was created. And once he was created, he had this opportunity to talk to God and probably said, thank you. And God mm -hmm. said, no problem. And then he created, a, there was another human being who had exactly the same language. Now think of that. Do you know how hard it is to learn another language? Mm -hmm. It's difficult, you know, and you've got all of those concepts there. You have to have them all at the beginning. It's an all or nothing proposition because if it isn't, it's not a language. Yeah, and so the so other person has to say, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? So Coco and you've been able to talk. Joan Goodall's Coco the Gorilla doesn't literally speak or understand. No, and I go through that whole story of uh, Washu the the talking monkey, where there if you're too young too young to remember, there was a whole story during the 1970s where animals we had finally broken through the language barrier, and there was a chimpanzee who knew how to talk. Well, wait a minute. Chimpanzees can't make any language, so it turns out it's sign language, and it turns out that basically sign language can be pretty ambiguous. And so you got this monkey doing things, and I, I know he just said bird, he just said sky, he said water, he said bird. It must he's saying duck. I'm, I, it's well, wait a minute. No, honey, you're just you're just projecting things into this random mo uh, motions, or else the monkey does learn to make a certain motion because you give him a little banana pill. But yep. it turns out that nobody could replicate it. And so the, all the enthusiasm died very quickly. And the whole thing went down the memory hole. And guess what? We're back at square one. We're the only people that can talk. You know, so, so we've, been, we've been going to movies and we've been watching Mickey Mouse talk to Minnie Mouse. And we talk, listening to Donald Duck. But basically, they don't talk. Ducks go quack. Ducks, I, I think ducks can communicate with each other. Because when I when I'm riding my bicycle down the path and it's covered with ducks, they all go, mack, 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 which means something like a guy on bicycle coming, get out of the way, something like that. That's communication, but De it's not death speed. Approaches, right? We'd be run over soon, right? Um, yeah. Th there's a profusion of movies and books about animals that can think and speak. Uh, the Beethoven series, uh, Lion King. Uh, Marley and me, Hachi. Uh, the more I think about it, there's lots of them. Animals with consciousness and the ability to to speak, even if they. Mr. Ed, Mr. Ed, Mr. Ed, right? Horror. Yeah, of course. Uh, but it it's a fantasy, and there's no. It doesn't work. I mean, we'd like to be able to think that the dog could could tell us that he loves us, but he can't. He can wag his tail. He can bark, but he can't can't say anything. Mm -hmm. And those 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 ducks. They can say, okay, there's a guy on a bicycle coming, get out of the way. But they can't say, look, if you're smart, you won't be here tomorrow because the guy's probably going to come by tomorrow. So don't be, no, they can't do that. And they can't say, they, don't have I, they can't say first person singular. I am a duck. No, no, they have no consciousness of themselves. So language is the kind of um, uh, interpersonal analog to wings and eyeballs. 
That's right. It's all or nothing. It's either either that thing that's on the back of your on your back allows you to fly or it doesn't allow you to fly. And there's no such thing as a half a wing. Either you make it allows you to fly or it doesn't. There's no middle ground here. The, that spot on your skin either uh, sees or it does not see. There's no intermediary stage here. And Darwinianism is based on intermediary structures. In other words, like having half an eye allows you to get closer to the prey and eat it than something that doesn't have any eye. Well, it doesn't work that way. It's all or nothing. There are no intermediary structures. So no, therefore, no mechanism for uh, uh, um, natural selection. Is this why uh, Fred Hoyle, the uh, atheist, I guess he was a what, astrophysicist, Fred Hoyle? got in trouble by saying that uh, natural, natural selection was as probable as having a tornado sweep through a junkyard and produce a 747. Yeah, they never forgave him for saying that. That's, <laughs> they hated him because he said that. But that, then you're getting into the argument for design, and there's <coughs> certainly an argument there, uh, and I, I mm -hmm. believe the argument, but I wanted to take it from a, a different angle. You might know this, but many... Uh, Catholic university students who say they lost their faith uh, invariably point to a, a couple of reasons why, and evolution is almost always at the top of the list. They, yes, they learn, that's absolutely true. Yeah, they learn that they're compatible, and they they have a kind of a strained reading of the catechism, and they'll, they'll read this commentator and that commentator. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's a book in your pipeline on evolution. Extremely I'm important. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've already written the other book, though. It's called Degenerate Moderns, which is basically, uh, uh, this is a true story. I was talking about evolution. There was a graduate of Notre Dame there. He said, you know, I, uh, I went to the class. I said, is this what you're saying? Did it all came from, and the priest said, yes, that's what, that's what I'm saying. That's what evolution is, and that's the truth. He said, well, what the hell? I went out and I slept with my girlfriend that night because mm -hmm. I've been holding off. I figured... What the hell? There's no reason not to. It's all random mutation anyway, and that's that's what I did. So there's a direct, direct correlation between education and moral decline when yeah. when education is there to make you believe in evolution. I just did a video on called uh, Can You Stay Catholic in College, and I talk about the Land O'Lakes Statement from 1967, July. I know you know the story, but uh, th this goes to the, the concept of Logos because if, as they did— uh, Father Teddy Hesburgh and another signature, signatory by the name of Father Theodore McCarrick and another guy named John Cogley. No one's quite sure why he was even there. Uh, Cogley eventually was a dissenter of Humana Vitae and, and uh, became an Episcopalian. But uh, once, you dis once you disconnect the life and teachings of Jesus Christ from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of that life and teaching— well, then, of course, your, your uh, motivation for not fornicating vanishes because that also rests on church authority. So if your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was, uh, was an ape who somehow magically got a, a soul that we call Adam, then there's more continuity between me and a rabbit than between me and Logos itself. Am I overplaying the card here? Right. No, no. And I think the first area where it had a devastating effect was uh, uh, capitalism. How so? Uh, because Darwin, Darwin was a you know is the people write books all the time, but it was the Huxley family. Uh, T. H. Huxley was 
uh, known as Darwin's Bulldog, and he promoted it among the elites in the in the in England at the time. T. S. Huxley is the I think he's the great is the great grandfather of Aldous Huxley, the man who wrote Brave New World. Right. That family, famous English family. He mm -hmm. was plugged into the elites, and he basically understood that this was great for capitalism because it removed moral restraint from the way the capitalist dealt with his with uh, his worker. And it was also a rationalization for their accumulation of wealth because they were, it was survival of the fittest. And they were obviously the fittest because they had the most money because that's the ultimate criterion of whether you're a good person or not and fit for this to, to pr promote uh, your, your, your genes, propagate your genes and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it fit like a hand in a glove with uh, capitalism. And so the market itself is, um, as the Lusitarians say, uh, totally amoral. It's just like evolution. Every so you obfuscate this whole thing by talking about a market without talking about well, what is the market? Mm -hmm. And the market is basically you and me. Uh, you've got something to sell. I've got some money I want to buy, and I'm trying. We're trying to come to an agreement where we both make out. Now, in that exchange, there's going to be one person who is strong and the other person is weaker or stronger and weaker. And it will be always uh, the tendency of the stronger to take advantage of the weaker, which means it's a moral issue. These are all potentially moral issues because you can force the issue, force your will on the weak and take advantage of them. And the, the instance where this normally takes place is when you try to sell your labor to someone because the employer always has the upper hand in this transaction. And is that and why you need to yeah. work? Is that what you just said? The basis for the strong papal um, endorsement of unions and the rights of the worker, the strong, the uh, I'm saying that the union allows the worker to stand on an equal footing with the employee or, or employer, almost an equal footing. Uh, the employer will always have the upper hand, but this makes uh, the, the, uh, the demands of labor stronger and he has to pay attention. The great, the great breakthrough in this regard came in the 1930s at the Dodge plant in Detroit when the workers who were going on strike decided we're not leaving the building. We're going to stay here. And that disrupted the whole manufacturing process. They couldn't hire scabs now. And so they had to settle. And that led to the great era of prosperity uh, after World War II when uh, Henry Ford II sat down with the UAW and agreed to a decent wage. Mm -hmm. That's what led to prosperity. I want to ask you about usury, uh, because usury is still condemned by the church. It was condemned by Aristotle and other pagan thinkers as being unnatural. So it's not something uh, dogmatically applied because of Revelation. It goes to um, what is natural. And Dante, was it in the Divine Comedy, puts usurers and sodomites in the same level of hell? Yes, yes. Yes. Dante was a, a, a dot connector extraordinaire. Why right. is usury in, identified with sodomy? Because the usurer takes what is sterile, namely money, and makes it fertile through compound interest. And the sodomite takes what is fertile, namely sex, and renders it sterile 
through his sexual activity. So they're the mirror image of each other. And so you have the user in the ninth circle sitting completely immobile with a bag around his neck and he just stares at his money. The sodomite is in perpetual motion. He's on a desert and every time his foot touches the sand, it burns the foot. So he's in perpetual motion. So they are mirror, mirror images of each other. But both, uh, the, what they share is their, the fact that they're both unnatural. This is, um, I hope, a non-awkward segue to what I wanted to ask you about Pythagoras and Plato, because it goes to emotion. We think of the word emotion, we don't, we look, we don't look at the etymological roots of it. Uh, emotion is motion. Uh, Plato said that love is the source of all motion. Did Plato have in mind something similar to gravity? Because you, you also talk about gravity as the, 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 the primal force, gravity as a kind of love in the universe. Yes, uh, Dante said gravity was love. So you Dante. have this tradition. Uh, you have this tradition uh, that begins with uh, with uh, 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 Plato, uh, but we're we're familiar with it with, through through Newton because that's where we get the term gravity, and uh, he had gravity and inertia, uh, which he got from Empedocles, uh, who was a philosopher, classical philosopher, who said that basically the universe was love and strife. Well, strife is inertia and love is gravity because gravity is the force that holds everything together. And that Dante saw as a divine force and that's what he saw as love. So the po point here is, but after Descartes, everybody separates the things of the mind from the things of the universe. And the mind becomes this alien force in the universe. It becomes the ghost inside the machine and nobody can explain how they're related. Well, that's because you've lost contact with Logos, because Logos is the link between the mind and the universe. And the mind can apprehend order in the universe because it was created by the same God who created the universe. So suddenly all these uh, dilemmas, they all disappear. Because the Logos becomes <clears throat> the, the bridge between seemingly unbridgeable um, realities time and eternity, uh, change and, and permanence uh, among, I mean, that's the beginning of a long list of, of, of the mysteries that are, that are solved in some way by the concept of Logos. Well, the, the fundamental modern mystery is Descartes with the res extensa and the res cogitans. How are they related? What are those res, res extensa and res cogitans for, for non-Latin? Res, ex, res extensa means uh, the extended thing or the universe and the res cogitans is the thinking thing or the mind. So what's the relationship between the universe and the mind? Well, he can't explain it. It, it. The closest he comes is mathematics. And at that point, you start going down the road of science because he became the philosopher of science. And at a certain point, mathematics becomes the the, the shorthand for logos for a certain group of people called scientists. And even the word ology, every word that ends with the suffix ology is that's a, a nod to logos, right? That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. What is a good definition of science as opposed to science incorporated or the, the fake science that gets uh, thrown at us by people like Anthony Fauci? Yes, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and I, 
I cover this in my book because uh, uh, basically science arose at a certain period in human history. What we're calling it's called what you're talking about is natural scientists, mm-hmm. science, which is basically uh, the study of the universe. Now we started off with that because uh, Thales and those people they were physicists. We were physiologoi. Uh, they were physicists. They were trying to study the universe because they got tired of the mythology of Homer. And they thought there's a better way with, to deal with this. And they reached a certain point and then they had to stop because they didn't have instruments necessary to explore the universe in depth. So they had no telescope and they had no microscope. And so it eventually, there's only so much you can do with the naked eye. And at that point, the Greeks lost interest and they switched to sophist, the sophistry, uh, sophistry, which is basically, how can I win court cases and make money? Mm-hmm. And so you switch to rhetoric and then Socrates came into being and he started criticizing the, the sophists and then you th- that grew up again. So you have a whole different uh, dimension here. Okay. And then, uh, uh, as I said, th- then there was an impasse and nobody could reconcile Aristotle's God with Plato's God. And that's where it stood. Aristotle had one student, famous student, and his name was Alexander the Great and he wasn't a philosopher. He just spread these ideas throughout the world by military conquest. And Jesus Christ was born into that world where people spoke Greek and sometimes Latin. And the revelation that we've already talked about of St. John about Jesus Christ was so powerful that nobody did anything else but theology. One exception, maybe Boethius, uh, a throwback to the old philosophical era when he wrote The Consolation of Philosophy. But nobody did anything but theology because it was so stunning that we just have to think through the implications and it took a baby a thousand years and so you'd have a book like uh, augustine's city of god where he said that uh, uh, salamanders live in fire i didn't really say that he said some people say salamanders live in fire it sounds plausible to me and that's a way that you can explain the souls in purgatory how you can uh, live and not perish in the fire well salamanders don't live in fire but that that nobody really looked into that for about 1500 years and then finally they realized well no they live in logs and if you take the log and you throw it on the fire the salamander is going to come out and try and run away and that's where you got the idea yeah but i'm saying for the the revel the christian revelation was so powerful that it postponed this examination of the physical universe for about a thousand years and then suddenly it came back and it came back with a vengeance because it came back at precisely the time that uh, scholasticism is dying of its own uh, internal problems and people are killing each other in the name of Jesus Christ in the religious wars of the 17th century. And people say, I want to get, I, I'm sick of it. I just want to talk about the universe. And you end up with people like um, Kepler, Galileo, all of those people. And that's where we had science. And science then took on the aura of ultimate authority, which is where we are today. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That's where we are today because what you have is Anthony Fauci uh, ruling us with an iron rod and basically telling us that, um, you know, uh, abortion clinics are essential services that should remain open, but we have to close your churches. Well, that's complete tyrannical. And that show, and the, and the fact that the church capitulates to this, is a sign that they've basically given up their claim to ultimate reality. 
They've simply capitulated to the scientists. There, this is not an exaggeration. There was an article in America magazine, and the headline was, I am a scientist. We must close our churches. Right. In the name, that's the science Inc. I'm talking about. That's right. That's and, right. And so you have this, uh, the, the battle in the public consciousness sold by the mainstream media is that in the, in the cosmic arm wrestle, science beat religion. Science is about objectivity and about truth and about facts. Uh, religion is about feelings and subjectivity and opinions. Absolutely. That's exactly the world that we live in. And that's the reason I wrote Logos Rising, because Logos is neither science nor feelings. It's neither one. I mean, I, n not science in terms of that type of fact, uh, fact physics. It's not physics. It's not little balls bumping into each other. Mm -hmm. as the ultimate reality. That is clearly what Bertrand Russell believed. It's called atomism. He got it from Democritus. It's not a new idea. But he clearly felt that he was in, in touch with that ultimate reality, and he could tell you how to live your life because he knew about those little balls bumping into each other. I was very uh, entertained and uh, edified by the 1948 BBC uh, debate between uh, Lord Bertrand Russell and Father Fred Cobbleston. It's a really interesting, uh, I'm going to put it in the show notes at patrickcoffin.media. I'm not sure if you've seen it, uh, or listened to it rather, um, Dr. Jones, but it's, yes, it's, quite, it's quite a class of, clash of titans. We're not talking about a, a you know, a Richard Dawkins soundbite in that particular um, uh, argument. And it reminded me of a story I've heard you mention in other interviews. Don't think you get into it in Logos Rising. And that is uh, your encounter with the uh, the teenage student in India. And uh, you very, uh, in a compressed way, summarized uh, an easy-to-grasp proof for God's existence. Can you summarize? Can you go over that? Yeah, that I was. I was turtles all the way down was the context. <clears throat> I, was, I was in India. And uh, it gave a little talk, and it was a 16-year-old boy, and he stood up, can you prove the existence of God? And I said, yes, I can. I said, nothing comes from nothing. There is something. Therefore, there was never nothing. This something could not bring itself into existence, because to do that, it would have to exist before it existed, and that's impossible. Therefore, something else had to bring it into existence, and that something is what all men call God. Now, Coppleston gave a, 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 a variation of that uh, in his debate with Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell didn't know what to say. He was yeah, completely... He, he, he just ran out of gas and could only change the topic. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, uh, that... that uh, that's what led me to, to, to do that. That uh, actual incident that happened in India. It's a variation on the, the third way of Thomas Aquinas, the argument for contingency. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it, right. it's... You can't it gets, have... Good. You can't have an infinite regress of contingent beings. And uh, uh, Ed Fazer used the example of the, uh, the train, okay? You can ask, well, why is the caboose moving? Well, because the boxcar in front of it's moving. Well, why is that boxcar moving? Well, because the boxcar in front of it's moving. Well, can you have an infinite string of boxcars? No, because the boxcar can't move. So it depends on a locomotive. And the locomotive is moving because it is a locomotive and nothing else has to move it. That's and, what got it. And you even, have yeah. to have some type of end to a regress. You cannot have an infinite regress. 
You cannot have, you could have an infinite number of boxcars, but they still couldn't move because a boxcar can't move. And they couldn't explain their own existence, that infinite That's series right. of boxcars. And I've interviewed That's Ed right. Fazer on this. Uh, Ed's a very, uh, very clear thinking man. Uh, he, he emphasizes that the, the boxcar being boxcars and caboose being moved by the engine, it's not just uh, um, a- applicable to time and the past where, you know, uh, the beginning of history is somehow the train or, or the purpose is the, the train engine, but it also applies to the present moment. Every present moment, including this particular present moment that you and I are having and when the show airs, uh, it's all dependent on the underlying continual will of God that we all continue to be, right? So it's not just uh, horizontal, it's vertical. Does that make sense? That's the ultimate motion, the ultimate source of motion. You could you could look at you could look at it the other way and talk about the lack of motion, but it's the same principle. So if you're going to build a bridge, uh, you have to get a a piling in the middle to hold the bridge up. Well, how do you do that? Well, you you put a form around it, you pump the water out, and then you there's mud there, and then you got to move through the mud till you find something that does not move, and that is the thing that does not move holds up everything else. That's what holds the bridge up. And so you can have an infinite uh, amount of cement, but if you find if you don't find something that doesn't move, you can't build a bridge. It's the same principle. And that was Aristotle called it the unmoved, unmoved mover, the thing that everything else depends upon. And he said you cannot have an infinite regress. Well, India is sort of based on the infinite regress. It's the national symbol. I, so I was, I'm in a conversation. This is an internet conversation with another Indian. And we start talking about Logos in India or the absence thereof. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what's it's like the, the symbol of the cosmos, the Indian symbol of the cosmos. The earth is a semicircle. It's sitting on four elephants. And the four elephants are standing on a turtle. So what's the turtle standing on? And the answer is turtles all the way down. But that's an infinite regress, and so that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And he converted to Catholicism because I said that. Well, there's proof positive that uh, that philosophy does have a role in Christian faith because you're not everything is we're not we're not fideists. Sometimes the mind can stumble upon a truth that, if it's aided by God's grace, can produce conversion and the desire for baptism. Yes, and I think that uh, the church has always recognized this. And as I said before, you could not have the doctrine of the Trinity without philosophical uh, speculation. You were given the, the, the fundament in Revelation, but you had to speculate on it using the categories of Greek philosophy in order to come up with the idea. Uh, there's a growing number of uh, young people uh, in the internet space and probably uh, elsewhere that read your books encounter the notion of Logos as rising. One of them is my recent guest, Roosh V, um, Valerie Roosh Valizeda, former pickup artist, you know, this guy who wrote uh, over 15 books on how to bed women around the world. And his, uh, the void he was trying to fill with all this behavior got deeper and deeper. <clears throat> and that malaise took over until he reached out to, to Logos, to God, and God answered his prayers. Um, what's it like to, to connect with people all over the world who, who discover the truth about Jesus Christ because of this notion of Logos? Well, it's kind of, uh, uh, what should I say? Kind of combination of awe-inspiring and humbling. Uh, 
but it also confirms me in the understanding that this is a category of reality. This This is not something I'm making up. I can't say something like this and have resonance all over the world if it didn't correspond to reality. And I think that that's precisely the point, that the people know that they have this power, this power because they're rational creatures, and it's always being subverted one way or the other. One of the main ways to subvert it is the stimulation of passion, which blinds you uh, to uh, lust, darkens the mind, it blinds you to reality. And, and the fact that people can wake up from it like that like Roosh did, uh, is a testimony to the power, the power of this this term, the power of this idea. And this idea is afoot uh, even outside Christian circles. Look at the the NoFap November and the rise of the NoFap community. These are these totally secular people. Some of them are atheists, and they realize, wait a second, if I'm missing if I misuse my sexual faculty, I'm going to ruin my life. And when you say misuse, what you're saying there is a proper use. Right. And when you're saying there's a proper use, then there's, you're saying that there is a logos to the human body. And that if you don't follow that logos, you're going to be unhappy. So in, a, in many ways, I wrote, I wrote uh, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. I wrote that 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And everybody laughed when that book came out, if, any, if anybody reacted at all. And now suddenly you're in a situation where I don't have to convince uh, young people in their 20s that the sexual liberation is a form of political control. They know that because they're addicted to pornography. And so when you come to come up with an explanation for that, that is based on the logos of the human body and the logos of the universe, they have a natural response and they say, yes, that's right. And they stop. Some people just stop because they understood the idea. That's what people have told me. I mean, it's a bad habit. It's always, you need grace generally to break bad habits. Uh, and I'm not denying that. But some people have told me, as soon as I understood that, I stopped. And then suddenly you have these people coming together in, uh, in last November and agreeing to boycott pornography. Well, where did that come from? It, I didn't organize it. It just happened because there's this spontaneous understanding that this violates the logos of sexuality, and I'm unhappy because I did it. And so they were they were denounced by Rolling Stone. Yeah. Uh, and they were called anti-Semites by Rolling Stone. Because, wait a minute, are you trying to tell me Jews are involved in pornography? Wait a minute, I wrote a book about that, and you didn't like that book, but now you're saying the same thing. Recently, you did a, a video called God Has a Plan for Your Life. Maybe we can uh, stop there, because I, I definitely want to dig in in part two when we go from the incarnation until... Uh, last Tuesday in Logos Rising. Uh, simple incident can happen to anyone. You're walking in an urban setting. It happened to be a bridge in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, there's a, a, a possibly homeless-looking black woman with a, a, a shopping bag full of her earthly, her earthly goods, and she comes up to you. Uh, just share that story, because I think it goes to something really important, and that is the role of divine providence behind and beneath all of this. Yeah, so it was raining, uh, I can't row, so I'm taking a walk, and she approaches me and she says to me, do you have a cell phone? And as I said, I'm the only guy in South Bend who probably doesn't have a cell phone. I said, no, I'm sorry. And at that point, I'm ready to walk, continue walking, and she says, I need to call my mama, I'm going to kill myself. And at that point, she hopped over the railing and stood on the ledge over the St. Joseph River which was, I don't know, it's pretty far down there. The water is, is high, it's raging, 
and she's ready to jump in the river. So for the next 10 to 15 minutes, I said, tried to persuade her not to. And I said, God has a plan for your life. And we went back and forth. Basically, she kept saying, nobody loves me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill myself. And I kept saying, God has a plan for your life. And it went back and forth. At one point, she grabs my umbrella, and she's going to pull me into the river, and I'm pulling her back. And then finally, she walks over to the parapet, and nobody can reach her. At this point, the cops show up. And at this point, we've got an impasse. She's She keeps telling she's going to kill herself. The cops keep telling her she's going to give her a place to stay. And at that point, I said a prayer. I said the memorari. And at that point, she walked back. And at that point, the cops grabbed her. And they brought her over, and so she didn't kill herself. And so she's got another chance now. They put her in a cop car. I've never seen her again. And so I began to speculate on it. I said, if I had left five minutes earlier or five minutes later, I never would have run into this woman. This was a plan from all eternity. This is God's plan. And I had nothing to do with it. I just showed up at that moment. But at that moment, free will kicks in. And at that moment, I could have just pushed her aside and kept on walking, but I didn't. Or at that moment, she could have jumped across the railing and jumped into the river without talking to me. But she didn't. Because part of the plan is involves our free will and our behavior. And the fact that we are here to talk to each other as rational creatures and maybe persuade people uh, not to do something that is uh, bad, really bad, and will affect you for not just this life, but for eternity. But the other part of it is, uh, at a certain point, uh, you can actually pray uh, and enter and have an effect on the outcome because you asked for some type of spiritual help. And I don't, you know, you can say what you want. I think that the prayer... Uh, had an effect on this woman because I think she stepped back. I know she stepped back after I said the prayer. You can say it's post hoc ergo propter hoc, but I think it had an effect. And so I think that's the whole story. In a nutshell, there is a divine plan. It it, it, it is predetermined to some extent, uh, but the predetermined because it's, it's already finished in God's mind. It's already over. It's in eternity. It's not. There's no such thing as over or before. It's eternity. Mm-hmm. It's in God's mind. But everything that happened, uh, happened according to free will. And the free will uh, involves invoking God's help because God is a part of this universe because of the incarnation. And he does listen to our prayers and he answers them. And so that was the whole, uh, the whole meaning that I saw in this chance encounter. So the answer to the question, uh, which, is, which is more powerful, free will of human beings or the, the, the divine will of God, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> there is, they're not mutually exclusive. The Muslims think they are. So I, I met a man in Tehran whose father, uh, a friend of his father, a father of his friend said that he believed that everything was fate. And so he believed that if Allah willed it, you would die. And so he walked out into traffic without uh, thinking. If, if, yeah. God, if Allah wills it, I'm going to die. If Allah wills it, I will get safely across. And so guess what happened? He got hit by a car because you're violating reason. God gave you reason in addition to giving you uh, everything else. And reason uh, allows you to make judgments about this universe that are accurate. 
and worth following because there's a logos in the universe that corresponds to the logos in your mind like a key to a lock. Your mind is the key that can unlock the universe because both share in logos. That's a good place to put a, uh, a comma or an ellipsis. We'll set up for part two or we're going to talk about Paul and the philosophers, uh, the incarnation, uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, the history and rise of science, uh, fascinating chapter on Hegel. The Hegel book could be, the Hegel chapter could be a, a book unto itself, all the way up to uh, uh, Annus Mirabilis, 1979. That's in part two. Look forward to it, uh, E. Michael Jones. Thanks, Patrick. It's always all right. a pleasure. All right, this is the Patrick Hoffman Show. Next week, part two on Logos Rising. The History of Ultimate Reality. This is the Patrick Coffin Show. Be a saint. What else is there? Hey, this is Patrick Coffin. If you like what you see in here and you want to see and hear more, consider joining Coffin Nation as a full member. Just click right here and find out more about what that means. Nipsey, my fedora. That's Coffin Nation, the world's largest online community of culture builders. Click right here. See you on the inside.